Okay, so what I want to do to get started this morning, I'm going to read a, a, a few passages to you, and you can turn there if you'd like. Um, I'm going to start in Genesis, and then we're going to move to the book of John, and then we're going to look at Romans. And I'm just going to read these, hopefully without a whole lot of comment, but um, this morning we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And so I want to start in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then it goes on in the next verses. And over and over again, it says, and God said, and God called, and God said, and God called. God spoke. Um, the word of God was expressed, and things happened. But we got to go back to and look at verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was there at creation. The Spirit of God played a part in creation. The Word of God played a part in creation. So if you go over to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, we pick up that same theme. And we read... John's in the New Testament, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, here it is. Somebody, somebody moved it. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here you see in those opening verses of John's gospel, the creation, the word, Jesus Christ, in the beginning, all things were created through him. Then it refers to him as in him was life and the life was the light of men and that light shines in the darkness. Well, then we flip over to Romans chapter eight and it says, you, verse nine, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, why am I bothering to read those three passages? Well, in them, you have the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. In them, you have the word. You have God speaking the word. God said, and it happened. You have the Holy Spirit hovering. You have the Holy Spirit um, acting in the creation of the world. Then in John, you have the coming of Jesus. And we know from scripture that the Holy Spirit played a significant part in not only the conception of Jesus, his coming into the womb of Mary, but he was filled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit, which is what Romans 8 talks about, and which is what should give us hope that we have that same Spirit living within us. So as we get into this this morning, what we're talking about is something incredibly significant for you and I, and it's the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, we're evangelical Christians and we all believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe the Holy Spirit, uh, I hope believe the Holy Spirit lives within us based on what the scripture teaches. 
But what I think we don't understand and we don't think about is that what's the reason for the Holy Spirit? What's the purpose? Why is he there? And what we're going to discover from the reformers as they began to wrestle with this particular doctrine about the role of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, uh, they began to realize how significant the Holy Spirit is. And for them, it became an issue of how do I get to know God? Remember, that was what Luther was driven by early on. Not only how do I get right with God, but once I get right with God, how do I really get to know God? And we talked about that last week. Well, the Holy Spirit plays a significant part in that process. And so what we're going to find out is this, this idea of the wrestling of these men with this doctrine that we take for granted. Now, this is the passage that we just looked at in Romans chapter 8. And I want us to look at it closely because it, it's pretty significant what it says. He says, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Now, we read it. We just read it again. But what's the point? Well, what I want you to look at is look at all the different references to the Godhead in this passage. It says the Spirit of God living within you. And most of us are comfortable with that idea that, that when we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit comes to live within us. But then it says the Spirit of Christ lives within you. Okay, well, he's the Spirit of Christ. Then it says Christ lives within you. And we briefly talked about this last week, but okay, which one is it? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Is it Christ? Is it then he goes on and says, the Spirit of God lives within you. He's not done. The same Spirit living within you. So now it just references the Spirit. You know, is, is, this, is, like, a, is this like an apartment with three people living there? What, what's going on? God, Christ, the Spirit. That passage in Romans chapter 8 says, all three are resonant within me. Why? Because the spirit who dwells in me is part of the Godhead. They, they are inseparable. They're linked. He was there at creation, just as Jesus was there at creation. He's there at, at my salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. They're inseparably linked. And, and what had happened, and what we're going to discover this morning, is that the Catholic Church and the theologians of the Catholic Church had kind of pushed the spirit to the side. And as, again, these men began to study the scriptures, they realized that, wait a minute, there's, there's a Trinity. And the Catholic Church believes in the Trinity, and the Catholic Church most certainly believes in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that they don't. But in the 1600s, the role of the Holy Spirit had been diminished greatly. So it talks about the spirit living within you. Jesus said this, he said, I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. This is what he told the disciples. He will come to you from the Father and will testify about me. So he's telling the disciples before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension, he says, I'm going to send you the spirit, the spirit of God. 
and it's the spirit of Christ because it's, he's part of the Godhead. And he will come from the Father and he will testify about me. What's the primary function of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life is to testify about Christ. It's not to give you emotions. It's not to give you feelings. It's not to supply you with power so that you can do certain things. It's so that he will testify about Christ. And anytime you think you're hearing from the Holy Spirit and he's not testifying about Christ, you need to step back and go, wait a minute. Anytime you hear somebody talking about what they've heard from the Holy Spirit, if it's not testifying about Christ, you need to step back. Because from the lips of Jesus himself, he says, he will testify about who? Me, not himself, but about Christ. So how did somebody living in this day, in the 16th century, the mid 1500s, how did they come to know God? What was the process? And remember, we've said this over and over again, everybody living in the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither Holy Roman or an empire, but everybody living in what is essentially Germany, modern Germany at that day was Catholic. So how did they come to know God? Through the church. The church, and this was from week one of this whole series, the church was the lead dog in that day. The church was what you went to, who you had to go through. It was the church. That's how you got to know God. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The communion of the Holy Spirit in the church restores to the baptized the divine likeness lost through sin. What's critical there is in the church, the Holy Spirit in the church, not the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, the scriptures are clear. The Holy Spirit does indwell the body of Christ, the church. But this is a different kind of a take on it. The communion of the Holy Spirit in the church, the Catholic church, the church of the 16th century. This is what they believed. In, in this baptism it's talking about is infant baptism, that everyone is baptized into the Catholic church. When you had a baby, you had them baptized into the church. And their salvation, their baptism was based on your faith, not their faith. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So how did you get to know God? You did it through the church. The church was the doorway. The church was the gateway. The church was everything. So here, here's the catechism goes on. Through the church's sacraments, Christ communicates his holy and sanctifying spirit to the members of his body. This is the current catechism, but it, is, it rings true with the, current, with the catechism of that day. So it hadn't changed. Slight alterations, but this is what was believed in the 16th century. This is true of the 21st century, through the church's sacraments. Remember, we talked about that there are seven sacraments, and you had to use those seven sacraments in order to get the grace you needed to live the life you needed to live. It was through the sacraments that you got even the Spirit, okay, the, the provider of grace. So the church was the key. It goes on, these mighty works of God offered to believers through the sacraments of the church bear their fruit in the new life in Christ according to the Spirit. Now, see, they, they keep the Spirit in there. The Spirit is a, he plays a role, but it's really the sacraments. The sacraments are the key. Sinclair Ferguson says this, increasingly over the centuries, the church had usurped the role of the Holy Spirit in the economy of salvation. The most obvious indication of that emerged in the way grace and salvation were mediated to the individual through the sacraments. 
seven sacraments. If you wanted grace, if you wanted salvation, well, first of all, you had to be baptized as an infant. You were baptized into the church. That's how it worked, through the church. But the key here is that the church had usurped the role of the Holy Spirit. So these men, the reformers, are living and breathing this atmosphere. From the day they're born, baptized, every one of them were baptized into the Catholic Church. And as they've grown up in the Catholic Church, Luther becomes a monk in the Catholic Church. They're all theologians of the Bible and the doctrines of the Catholic Church. But what they begin to realize is that, wait a minute, what about the Holy Spirit? What role does he play? Sinclair Ferguson goes on, in a sense, for all practical purposes, salvation was locked up in the sacraments with the keys kept safely in the hands of the priest and prelates of the church. If you wanted absolution from sin, who do you have to go to? The priest. If you wanted baptism for your child, who do you have to go to? The priest. If you wanted grace, you had to go to the priest. If you wanted anything, you had to go to the priest in the church. Which church? The Catholic church. It's the only show in town. And so they began to realize, the reformers, that this does not gel with Scripture. You had these priests, you had these prelates who, who basically were the doorway through which you got access to the sacraments, and they were the means by which you got access to anything else, salvation, grace, even the Holy Spirit. F.J. Taylor says this, ecclesiastical authority, the church's authority, priests, prelates, bishops, pope, had been driven to concentrate upon the problem of authority and to claim for itself in the church a final authority which almost appeared to eliminate the necessity for the continuing activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you had asked a, a, a Catholic at that point in time, does the Holy Spirit play a role? They would have said yes. If you ask a Catholic today, does the Holy Spirit play a role? They would say yes. But the problem is, at least what the reformers began to see, is that the church had taken over much of the responsibility given by God to who? The Holy Spirit. It's his job. It's his role. He is the gateway to Christ. He is the giver of life. And we're going to find out that that term, giver of life, is going to resonate with the reformers in a pretty incredible way. I love this from Michael Reeves and Tim Chester. If, if you want a book on the Reformation, this is a great one. You know, if you still haven't picked one up, I think they have them in the bookstore. Listen to what they say. For most of the Roman church, the sacramental system and the clergy seemed effectively to replace the spirit. God's grace was a blessing accessed through the seven taps of the seven sacraments. And the clergy were the ones who turned those taps on or off. With such a hermetically sealed plumbing system for grace, the spirit was left with nothing to do. And this woodcut that you see here is somebody getting absolution from a priest, going to confession. Everything was through the church. The priest held the keys. The pope held the keys. If you, you know, one of the reasons excommunication was so huge, and whenever they said, you're anathema, you're cursed, it was excommunication, you were removed from the seven sacraments. But what, is that, what does that say about what we believe about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit lives within me. The Holy Spirit doesn't desert me. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave me. And I get the Holy Spirit at salvation. But no, what they're saying is we can excommunicate you from the church and we can literally remove the Holy Spirit from you because you get the Holy Spirit how? Through the church. 
We do not believe that. The reformers began to not believe that. And they began to write about it and they began to teach it and they began to debate about it and wrestle with it and write tremendously about it. One of the greatest writers in regards to the role of the Holy Spirit was John Calvin. Once again, John Calvin is kind of saddled with the five points of Calvinism, which he didn't write. And yet he wrote tremendously and greatly and prolifically about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Well, the Nicene Creed is going to play a role. As, as the Reformation moves along, what, you ended up with all these creeds getting writ, written. And really what they were were kind of statements of faith written by the church. This is a, an actual picture of a papyrus um, of the Nicene Creed that, that we have. And it was the Nicene Creed is a product of the Council of Nicaea, which met in 325 A.D., so it's a statement of faith. And you saw these coming along as the reformers began to kind of get their heads around what it is we believe, they began to put them in these statements of faith so that they could disseminate them to the people. It was also a way of debating with the Catholic Church. Here's what you believe, here's what we believe. And so in the Council of Nicaea, they, they come out with this Nicene Creed, and here's what they say about the Holy Spirit. This is not all they wrote, but this is the key statement I want to concentrate on. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. It's interesting when um, this is actually, um, this came out in a, an addendum to the Nicene Creed years later because in 325, it was much shorter. It didn't say he was Lord and it didn't say he was giver of life. It was just like, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, oh yeah, there's the Spirit. And after, again, continued debate, reading the scriptures, they came back and they expanded and they said, no, he is the Lord, and he is the giver of life. And it goes on to describe the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit. What they were understanding was that he's part of the Trinity. Now, you and I would sit there and go, well, yeah, everybody knows that. Well, no, not everybody's always known that. And in the Catholic Church, because he had been diminished so much they heard always about God the Father. They heard always about Christ the Son, but they rarely heard about the Spirit. Well, I don't know what denomination you grew up in, but in mine, I didn't hear about the Spirit. We didn't, I didn't hear messages about the Spirit. The only time I heard the Holy Spirit's name mentioned was during a baptism. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In our church, we said the Holy Ghost, which made him even more ethereal and distant and weird. But I didn't know what the Holy Spirit did. I didn't know he was part of the Trinity. I didn't understand his function. So I grew up without him in my mind. Well, you can imagine what that's, that does to your spiritual walk if, as the reformers discovered, he's critical to your spiritual walk. And if you don't know he's there, and if you don't know what he does, then what do you lean on? Well, you lean on you. It's your effort they began to discover that he's a person. He's not this disembodied spirit. He's not a force. And really, if you read a lot of the Catholic theologians of the day, he had become more of a force than a person. He was a power source. And power was important to their salvation economy. How do you grow in, in uh, justification? How do you move along that continuum 
towards righteousness to where someday you'll stand before God and he goes, you're righteous. Well, you did it through the sacraments. You did it through grace. You did it through power, strength that you needed to live the life so that one day you could stand before God and he goes, hey, you're righteous. Come on in. Inherent righteousness. And so he just became kind of one more power that you needed to live the life. And as we read in Genesis 1, he played a role in creation, but he also plays a vital role in new creation, in your new creation, how you come to faith. And Luther wrote a lot about justification, how are we made right with God, but Luther would also say that the Holy Spirit plays a major role in that. Here's what he says, by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel. Now, this is going to be really critical as we keep moving through this, because one of the things that they realized was that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are inseparable. You, you can't have one without the other. And why that's important for us as we talk about this is that within just a few years, you're going to see a movement take off within the church, the Reformed church, the Protestants, that has everything to do with the Spirit and nothing to do with the Word of God. It's the first kind of glimpse we get of for lack of a better term, Pentecostalism. Um, all spirit, no word. New revelation, old revelation. This is more important than this. So you're going to see coming out of the Ref Reformation, men who begin to say, it's all about the spirit. It's all about new revelation. He lives within me. I don't need this ancient book because I have new revelation from the spirit. And it's going to start to divide the reformers. And they're going to write about this and debate about this. And so this idea of the Spirit's role in salvation is huge. It's huge today. It was huge then. And it was, a, again, it's a discovery that these guys made as they studied the Scriptures. Salvation is not God helping you, the weak sinner, fix your life. But in uh, American Christianity in particular today, that's kind of how we view it. You're a weak sinner. You need to fix your life. You're screwed up. You need to live a better, live a better life. And so God brings salvation to you, and then it's up to you to kind of clean up your act. And that's how most of us have lived our Christian life is, oh, I got to clean up my act. I, I got to do more. I got to pray more. I got to read more. I got to study more. I got to meditate more. I got to memorize more. It's you fixing your life. Well, the reformers are finding out that, no, you need divine rescue, you're not a weak person who just needs a little strength. You're a dead person that needs life. And, and, and we talked about that weeks ago when we talked about justification, that you need God to step in. So belief in the Spirit as the giver of life would become an incredible discovery for these reformers. And they would connote it with salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. See, the Spirit is essential. When we read Genesis 1, 1 or, and verse 2, it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. What most theologians will read from that and discern from that based on the rest of the Scriptures is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all integral in creation. The, the, the Spirit is almost always referred to as this giver of life. It's true of physical creation. It's true of new creation. How did Jesus come into the world in the incarnation? Through the Spirit giving life 
through Mary. And who was born from Mary? Jesus himself. See, the role of the Spirit is huge in the incarnation. He's huge in your rebirth, your salvation. So the Reformers, again, are... are It'd be like if you had never heard any of this before in your life and you start reading the Bible and you go, wow, that's what's happening to these guys. They're discovering truths they've never been taught, truths they've never known. And they believed in this radical, incredibly radical transformation from the inside out. But what was the Catholic church teaching? It's from the outside in. It's your efforts to transform your interior so that one day you could stand before God as righteous. But what they are reading in the Bible is no, it's about the Holy Spirit giving you a life because you're dead and transforming you inwardly and it will show up outwardly. And again, some of us are always looking on the outside and we live on the outside because we're human. That's our kind of mental state. It's our default setting. And we look at all the exterior stuff I need to do, and we totally look past the Spirit. You know, Francis Chan wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Forgotten God, and it's about the Holy Spirit. It's a great book, little little book. Doesn't have pictures, but it's short. The Forgotten God. We forget the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. We forget his role. We forget his function. And we forget that we are hard-hearted, stony-hearted Christians or stony-hearted sinners who need a change that we can't bring about. And you can't change yourself through behavior modification. And I know you know that's true because you've tried. And you may say, well, it worked for a week. But what about the next two weeks? Anybody ever gone to a marriage enrichment seminar? I hate marriage enrichment seminars. Um, I've been to them only because my wife made me go to them. And here's what happens, and and I don't mean to just demean marriage enrichment seminars, but here's what they do typically, the ones I've been to, is you meet together and they do all these wonderful things and they teach you all kinds of things about marriage and then they separate you. Women go over here, men go over here. And then, then for like hours they tell you, here's how you do this better. You need to have date nights. You need to do this. You need to communicate better. You need to listen more. You need to understand her love language. And they give you all the stuff and you walk out of there kind of browbeaten and, okay, I'm going to do this. We're going to have a date night and I'm going to listen better and I'm going to be more sensitive and I'm not, I'm going to quit turning on the TV when I come home and it, and I I have this incredible intent to change my behavior. How long do you think it lasts? About a week. And then I find out this is really hard and she's not even noticing. So I'm going to go back to my old way of doing things. I'm going to watch TV because I want to watch TV and I don't want to talk right now. I've had a busy day. And, and so I can't change my behavior for very long. And I think that's the whole point. I need something outside of me to come within me and do what only God can do. I need grace, but it's not grace through the sacraments. And that's what was being taught. That's what these guys had been immersed in all their childhood, all their early ages, and even into their adulthood. It's all about the sacraments. I need more than what the sacraments can give me. I need more than just going to confession. I need more than what the priest can absolve. I need something greater for my salvation. 
Now, William Tyndale, who's, who is an English reformer, he says this, our, our problem is the heart with all the powers, affections, and appetites wherewith we can but sin. There's old English coming up again. What's he saying? We got a problem. It's our heart. Because apart from Christ, all I can do is sin. All your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 10. That's the problem. We can't do anything but sin. Here's our solution, according to William Tyndall. It's the spirit which looseth the heart. See, the spirit, if you don't have the spirit, I could read you this book. I could read you the four gospels every day, 24 hours a day, until I went hoarse, and you would never come to faith in Christ without what? The help of the Spirit. And yet we give him no credit and we give him no real role in our lives. And yet he's critical to salvation, the Holy Spirit. So for the reformers, it wasn't just about the Holy Spirit. It was about the gospel, the role of the gospel in my life and in your life. Because the root of the problem is not your behavior. It's not my behavior. It's much deeper than that. It's not a matter of you learning to do right things versus wrong things. But isn't that how most of us have grown up in the church? If you think about how you were taught in Sunday school as a kid, and one of the things I love about Christ Chapel is that's not how we teach our children. We don't teach moralistic stories. But if you look at most of the stories you were taught as a kid about the Bible, we take every Old Testament story and we turn it into a moral lesson. Dare to be a Daniel. Be like Daniel. Be like uh, David, you know, conquer the, the giants in your life. Everything becomes a moral story about what you need to do to be like this Old Testament character. That's behavior modification. But how did David kill Goliath? Through the power of the Spirit. It, it's how did Daniel live the life he lived? Through the power of the Spirit. Not through his flesh, not through his behavior modification. We have to have the spirit to transform us for salvation, for sanctification, but it's always through the gospel. Now, the gospel is not just found in the gospels. That's kind of a misnomer that many of us have. This book is the gospel. It's the revelation of God but it's the revelation of how God has chosen to redeem man from fallenness back to righteousness. This is the gospel. That's why we read the whole Bible. That's why we teach the whole Bible. It's all the gospel. And it's through the teaching of the word of God that the spirit does his work. So if you're not in the word of God, and, I, and this is where you're going to have this departure of the um, reformers, is you're going to have this splinter group who the reformers ended up calling the spiritualists or the enthusiasts. And they would say, all you want is the spirit, but you're not testing it against the word of God. And you run amok. You get into all kinds of stuff because you're saying, I'm hearing from the spirit directly, but it contradicts what you hear in the scriptures. And you need to avoid that. That's dangerous. That's why we have the spirit. I have to have the spirit to understand the scriptures, but I also have to have the scriptures to test the spirit to make sure I'm actually hearing from the spirit. Because otherwise, you're going to end up hearing from someone other than the Spirit. And you read that in the letters of Paul. So i got to have the Spirit. 
Michael Reeves and Tim Chester go on and say, when the Father and the Son share their spirit with us, they share with us their own life, love, and fellowship. That's that idea of the Trinity living within me. That's why when we read earlier about in Romans chapter 8 that I have the Spirit of God within me, I have the Spirit of Christ within me, I have the Spirit within me, I have the Godhead living within me. I don't have an isolated individual of the Godhead, I have the Godhead living within me, the power of the Godhead, the holiness of the Godhead, the righteousness of the Godhead living within me. Is that hard to get my head around? Yes. Do sometimes I feel like none of them are there? Yes. But it doesn't change the reality that they are there because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. They go on and say, still today, Christians display a strong gravitational pull away from knowing God. We can believe and proclaim some message called the gospel, and we can hold a high view of the Bible, go to church, live what we like to think are holyish lives, and still not actually know God. Our gospel can be a get-out-of-hell-free deal we have signed where knowing Christ is non-essential. Our holiness can be nothing more than self-dependent morality. I think that is an incredibly accurate statement of so many within the church today. And maybe some of us in the room today that we have this get out of jail free card that we know we're going to heaven and that's all we really care about. And I don't really need the Holy Spirit because I'm just going to live this holy-ish life on my own. And the reformers would say, you can't do it. It's impossible. You got to have the Holy Spirit, not only for salvation, but for sanctification. Because according to them and according to the scriptures, which is where they got it from, the Spirit gives us a new heart. He gives us a new life. You have a new life in Christ. You have a new ability to enjoy God for the first time in your life. That's why the scriptures say nobody seeks God, no one. That's why I don't believe in a seeker-sensitive movement. There are, there's nobody seeking God. Because I can only really seek God with the help of the Holy Spirit. I can only know God through the help of the Holy Spirit. I can only truly enjoy God through the help of the Holy Spirit. And I can only have assurance through the help of the Holy Spirit. See, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, it's because you don't have a firm grasp on the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. The fact that he lives within you, he never leaves you, he never, never forsakes you. And if you read the book of Galatians, especially chapter 3, Paul hammers the Galatians on, are you going to move away from the very individual, the Holy Spirit who came into your life and made salvation possible, and now you're going to start living by the law again? But isn't that what we do? Okay, I needed, I needed him for salvation, but my sanctification is just me keeping a bunch of rules. And Paul told the Galatians, no, you, you missed the point. You've fallen back into the wrong thing. You've made it all about you when it's all about God. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. I love John Calvin, what he has to say about this idea of assurance. He says, it's harder for the heart to be furnished with assurance than for the mind to be endowed with thought. See, we're great at thought. We're great at filling our heads with information. I love the fact that we have a bookstore. I love the fact that many of you guys are reading about the Reformation. I have been reading relentlessly about the Reformation. I got four more books yesterday about the Reformation. I just keep reading about it, but it does me no good if I fill my head with knowledge, but my heart remains cold. Because my heart has to be furnished with assurance, not my head. It's not what I know, it's who I know. The Spirit accordingly serves as a seal to seal up in our hearts those very promises, the certainty of which it has previously impressed on our minds. How do you get it from here to here? It's the Holy Spirit. You ever read the Bible and you, well, I know the answer to this. The answer is yes. 
You read the Bible and you go, man, I don't get it. I got nothing out of that. That was a waste of my time. And then maybe six months later, a year later, you come back and you read it and you go, wow, that's incredible. And you forget that you read that before and it meant nothing. What changed? Are you smarter? Have you learned to read better? Have you learned more words? Has your vocabulary increased? No, it's the spirit. It's the spirit of God. He's working in you. He's helping you understand the word of God. He is critical to this thing. And that's why the reformers are going to tie together word and spirit. You can't separate them. You can't separate the word of God from the spirit of God. You have to have both in order to grow as a Christian. And yet, what do we do? We separate them. How many times have you read the Bible and you've never thought about, I will never get anything out of this if I don't allow the Holy Spirit to guide me and direct me? And here's what I encourage you to do. And some of you are going to wrestle with this because of how you grew up, but it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's okay to say, Holy Spirit, as I start to have my quiet time this morning, would you help me understand this? Would you speak to me this morning so I can better understand this? It's okay to to talk to Jesus in your prayers. It's okay to talk to the Holy Spirit. It's okay to talk to God because they're the Trinity. And he, his, his primary role is to help you understand Jesus through the scriptures. Ask him. And so these guys are wrestling with it and they're beginning to understand that without the Holy Spirit, you can't understand this book. That's why I've told you this before. I had a professor at Baylor who was my uh, Old Testament professor who to this day, I don't think was a believer because he had rejected all the miracles of the Bible. He had rejected the virgin birth. He had rejected um, so much of the doctrines that we believe in. He was brilliant when it came to the Bible and the Old Testament, but what was he probably missing? the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So he had head knowledge, but he lacked what? Heart transformation. It's all dependent on both. The Spirit of God makes the word understandable. So if you ever read the Bible and you go, I don't get it, I don't understand it, it's like a brick wall to me, there's probably an issue going on between you and the Holy Spirit. You're probably living in the flesh and not in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And you will be able to tell a radical difference when you're living with your your dependency solely on the Holy Spirit that the Bible will start to come alive. And why some of you can't stand reading the Bible is because you have quenched the Spirit in your life. You don't need Him. It's all about you. It's all about your effort. But what I've learned in my life is when I try to do it my way and in my strength, this book becomes dry and meaningless. Is it divinely inspired? Yes. But there are many, many people who read this book who never come to faith in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit plays a role. The Holy Spirit has to play a role. Paul told the Corinthians, no, the wisdom we speak of, of is, this, is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began, but the rulers of this world have not understood it, have not understood what? The wisdom of God, the mystery of God. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Why did the Jews kill Jesus? Because they didn't get the gospel. You know, he told them, you, you read, you're experts in the Old Testament, you're experts in the scriptures, but you, you've missed me. You haven't seen me. What did he tell those two disciples after his death 
And after he had resurrected her, walking along that road to Emmaus, and they were so disappointed and they were so down in the dumps. And Jesus comes alongside of them. And when he finally reveals himself to them, what does he do? He takes them through the Old Testament and he says, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. And he reveals to them himself through the scriptures. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you and I today. Paul goes on and says, that's what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. How do we understand by his spirit? For a spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. You want to know God? You got to be in the word. You want to know the word so you can know God? You got to know the spirit. And you got to listen to the Spirit and live according to the Spirit. And then he says, no one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own Spirit. No one can know God's thoughts except God's own Spirit. And we have received God's Spirit. So we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. We can know the things of God. I can know God. I can know the thoughts of God. I can know the mysteries of God revealed in the Word of God with the help of the Spirit of God. That's why the Spirit is so critical. And yet for many of us, he's the forgotten God. So what do we do with this? Why do we need to keep the Word and the Spirit connected, one dependent upon the other? Well, the Catholic Church had superseded the Word through the sacraments, through the role of the church, the decretals of the church. The enthusiasts, and we're going to get into them later in the weeks ahead, but these spiritual enthusiasts who had rejected the Word of God were basically saying, I get new revelations. And they ran amok. They went bonkers. They went crazy. And they were no longer testing the spirits against the word of God. We can't live according to new revelations. We have every revelation we need given to us in this book. But I got to have the word and I got to have the spirit. So you're going to see as we move ahead in the weeks ahead, you're going to see the radical reformers, the Anabaptists. You're going to see these enthusiasts. And they were referred to as the left wing of the Reformation. They were kind of the countercultural wing and they're going to, many of them are going to abandon the necessity for Scripture and just go to the Holy Spirit. That is a warning sign for every one of us in the room. You've got to stay with the Scriptures. And you've got to have the Spirit, but you can't separate the two. It can't all be about the book where it's all head knowledge. It can't be all about the Spirit where it's all just emotion. It's got to be both together. I love this. Calvin wrote a, a treatise called Against the F Fantastic and Furious Sects of the Libertines Who Are Called Spiritualists. These guys could not write a short, pithy title. Um, but I just literally bought a book on this very thing just to hear what he has to say about these, against these spiritualists because they were saying, we hear directly from the Spirit. They said, we don't need written words anymore. And as a matter of fact, they would call Calvin and others they were basically clinging to the scriptures. You're holding yourself back because you're so addicted to this book. But Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon and Bucer and all these guys would say, you know what? I'm going to stay connected to this book and I'm going to stay connected to the spirit because I have to have both. So in 1646, you get the Westminster Confession, again, another statement of faith. The authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. It's not the church. It's not men. 
But then it goes on, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So what are the reformers learning? What are they teaching? What are they writing down in their documents? I need the spirit. I need the word. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. You see how they're saying, no, don't leave this book and go to just the Spirit. Don't leave this book and go to the writings of the church. Go to this book with the help of the Spirit. And we need to do the same thing today. Nevertheless, we acknowledge, they write, the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. See, guys, this may have all just kind of just exploded in your head and you may just be going, wow, that's a lot. It is a lot, but we got to wrestle with these things. And so here's what I want you to do in the time I've left you. Why do you think that we are so prone to seek new revelations from God rather than accepting what's already been revealed in his words? What's in us that makes us want to do that? Why does that drive us? Go back and look at 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. What difference do you think it would make if every time you read the word of God, you asked the spirit of God to make it understandable for you? I'm telling you, it will revolutionize your time in the word. And then finally, are the word and the spirit inseparable in your life? If not, why not? Father, I thank you for these guys. Thank you for their patience. Thank, for, thank you for their willingness to come week after week and hear these deep truths and doctrines that we've kind of long forgotten, don't want to think about, don't want to wrestle with. And yet, Father, they are critical to our life as believers. Father, I admit that I've left the Holy Spirit out of my life far too often. He hasn't left me, but I've kind of left him. And I try to do it on my own strength. And I try to read the Bible without his help. And it, it never gets me anywhere. But when, when I depend on him, it comes alive. And life becomes so much richer, deeper, and easier with his help. Father, bless the time around the tables. And I thank you for these men. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.